0: GREAT PATIENT ONE CHAPTER SEVENTEEN READ BY ACHAN SUCHITO AND NICK SCOTT
1: Having left Bodgaya, the pilgrims head off the beaten track, walking into the forest
0: of southern Bihar. CHAPTER SEVENTEEN THE FOREST TRADITION Nick Scott Next morning I woke to the pattering sound of rain on the roof and felt glad to be snug and dry inside. Ajahn Suchita was already up, sitting in meditation on the other bed. I lay there, in the darkness, listening to the rain dripping off the roof, and reflecting that it had been a wise decision to stay in rest-houses for the rest of the trip south through the forest, as well as the chilly nights we expected in the hills ahead. It could also rain in January. Without our bivy bags to protect us, it would have been very unpleasant under a tree that night. Later there was breakfast brought by the chokidar. We ate it with our host, the forest officer, on the porch of his house. As the plates and food were passed round, he made arrangements for our midday meal, which he had insisted we must also have at his house, even though he couldn't be there. He was a good man, shy, courteous, and very helpful. He'd done all he could the night before, cleaning out one of the rooms in his government-issue house and trying several times to offer us food. It must have been a real shock having these two strange westerners arriving out of the night, but he dealt with it well. The walk from Bugaya had been a mostly pleasant one on a track that initially followed the river south. Then our path had crossed some slightly higher ground, passing fields that seemed drier and poorer than the ones by the river the feeling from the people we were now passing changed too. Maybe it was our anxiety about the robbery, but these people seemed unfriendly. Then, just before we reached the road, we met three men whose interest felt more sinister. We got away from them and hurried on, reaching the road just as dusk was falling. We felt safe again trudging beside it into Burrachati, with big lorries roaring by, their headlights sweeping over us the lorries were on their way to Calcutta or in the other direction to Delhi, roaring through the night on the Grand Trunk Road, which still officially runs beyond Delhi all the way to the Khyber Pass and the border with Afghanistan, once the limit of British rule. So we'd been pleased to find the Forestry Department compound in Burrachati, even though to begin with it seemed empty. A forest guard then did turn up and he brought the forest officer who, once he'd prepared our room and accepted that we were not going to eat, sat with us over tea on his porch. He answered a lot of questions I had about the forest, the wildlife, and what it was like trying to work for conservation in India. The officer was disappointed that he had to go off in the morning on his motorbike to see his superior the district forest officer in Gaia. He would have liked to come with us. Instead, the guard would guide us to the next forest rest-house at Dangan. It was four or five hours from Barachati, and the guard would take us by a route that would pass through some good forest, not that there was much of it left. And we were not to pay for our stay at Dangan. We must be his guests, and he would arrange for all our food. As I said, He was a good man. We left in the early afternoon with the guard and an older man, crossed the grand trunk road and headed south down a track leading into what remained of the forest. It was a scene we were by now familiar with. Cut over woodland consisting of tree stumps trying to regrow and lots of bare stony ground. As we went on, the regrowth got bigger the stumps and the thorny shrubs amongst them got closer together and the bare ground decreased. However, it hardly seemed to justify the protected forest status indicated on our maps or to be living up to the name the government had recently given it, Gotom Buddha Wildlife Reserve. The forest officer had told us how impossible it was to protect the forest. He was personally responsible for a 150 square kilometres. And to look after it, he had just four forest guards, two or three helpers, like the old man who was with us now, and as equipment, just one motorbike. They were severely underfunded, and while they could manage to stop some of the illicit commercial extraction, there was nothing they could do about the villagers cutting wood or grazing their cattle. As evidence of his valiant efforts, there were three impounded trucks parked in his drive, each with forest products in them. One was full of hardwood, another had beetle leaves, and the third a gum extracted from a particular tree. He did explain which tree, but the name meant nothing to me. All I got was that the gum took three days to extract after felling the tree, and that one of the locals had spotted them in the forest extracting it. They caught them by setting up a road trap with the help of the local police. It would be several years before the cases made their way to court, but now the law had been changed, so that they could impound vehicles as evidence. That was a more effective deterrent than the fear of prosecution. He told us, that the load of beetle leaves was already rotting, and by the time that case occurred, there would be no evidence left. I really felt for him. He was honest and very committed. At one point he talked enthusiastically about the wildlife he'd seen, but most of his talk was depressing. He couldn't stop the forest going. He just had to live there and do what he could, on his own as his wife was back in their home village. On the walk through the forest we met quite a few people, and invariably the forest guard we were with was treated with a lot of respect. They knew him well. We were passing through the area of forest he was responsible for, and they liked him. The locals would all stop to chat, and although his green khaki jacket and trousers weren't much of a uniform, there was always an air of deference. We passed through a village in a clearing where people called out to him and then into more hilly terrain. It was there that six men came round a corner ahead of us. They were carrying guns, old muskets that they must have been using for poaching. As soon as they saw us, they dived into the bushes and disappeared. So much for the wildlife, in the wildlife reserve. But at least with the guard there, we felt protected. It had been overcast with low clouds when we set off, but now the sun was reappearing, leaving wisps of mist on the hillsides. We were now amongst vegetation, one could almost call trees. An occasional villager with grazing cow was still here and there, but it was all much denser and the leaves glistened from the night's rain. Then we turned into a valley, the higher slopes of which were dotted with mature trees. They all seemed to be of the same species, a hardwood with straight trunks and a light orange bark. The guard stopped and pointed to them, giving them a Hindi name I didn't know. Based on their leaves, I guessed they were some kind of acacia. That one valley was the good forest the forest officer had spoken of. It was nothing compared to the expanse of forest we had passed, and we were soon through it, and coming out into a wider cultivated valley containing the small village of Dangan. We turned off the track that led to the village, heading instead for a government bungalow on a slight rise, just up the valley.
1: Moving into greenness, that would be good. Translucent leaves and light dappling through the gently shifting shadows. Walking softly, startling big-eyed spotted deer. Or a breath-stopping recognition before they bounded off into the underbrush. Or maybe glimpsing a stately elephant, shouldering through massive clumps of bamboo or growing hushed to the sound of distant roaring, the shriek of monkeys and the trill of insects in the vibrant stillness of the forest. Spending time away from the human jangle of the wide open plains would be healing. The green wood is the place of soothing the heart, of returning to a cooler rhythm and view. It has always been the place of sages, yogis and seekers from before the time of the Buddha until the present day As the Buddha said Delightful are the forests where worldlings find no pleasure There the dispassionate will delight for they seek no sensory excitement Under a tree the master was born Under a tree he awakened, and when he passed away, a grieving canopy of leaves bent over and rained flowers upon him. Throughout his years of teaching he had always made it clear that the forest was the preferable resort for summoners. The still but vibrant atmosphere was ideal for the cultivation of calm, while the insecurity of individual life in the wilderness, together with the sense of becoming an integrated part of nature, was a good model for insight into the way it is. Because of this, forest monasticism has continued until the present to be a rugged and individualistic option among the more increasingly socialising interpretations of the Buddha's teachings. From the Upanishads on through the Buddhist suttas and on into the new religious works developed in the Vedic tradition, there was a recognition of the value of living in the forest. The post-Buddhist epics Ramayana and Mahabharata contain sections wherein the warrior heroes spend years in exile in the forest, doing little but assimilating the maturing influence of a world outside of the cultivated mindset. These massive works incorporate the previously outcast samurai lifestyle by seeing it as a stage in the evolution of a Dharma hero. Although they portray the hero finally as affirming the domestic and social ideals of Vedic society rather than transcending them. Thus the umbrella known in the West as Hinduism brought the religious goal within the society's structure. We set out in a light rain with two guides, a middle-aged man in a uniform and an old man in a dhoti and jacket. I felt frustrated by my low energy, Although the long route, an estimated seven hours' walk, was more interesting, I couldn't see my being able to make it. So we had to settle for the short four-hour walk. A tinge of guilt added to my gloom. The forest mirrored my mind. Where was the regenerative verdure? Gotum Buddha Wildlife Reserve was a sandy tract with patches of scrub in which morose cattle with clanking bells foraged for green shoots. The land rose gently, and hills gathered around us. Occasionally we'd come across dark-skinned herders with off-white dhotis and headcloths squatting by the track. They looked at us impassively and said nothing. We were Westerners. Perhaps that said enough about where we were going. In The Legends of the West the seeker always fares onwards, seemingly incapable of stopping and assimilating anything. To the questing knight, unaware of Maya, the play projected by the seeker's spiritual state, the forest is not a place to open up to. Because of his blind cultivation of the accepted virtues, the knight is unable to respond to life with authentic sensitivity and his time in the forest presents him with examples of his own spiritual aridity. Instead of being verdant, it is the desert, the desolate place. It is also the place where he is tested by witches, demons and dragons, messengers from his unawakened spirit. Fortunately, he has the integrity not to run away or control the process. He lets go of the reins of his steed, and allows it to take him wherever it will. However, he did remain firmly in the saddle. I felt more like Alice's white knight in Through the Looking-Glass, falling off his horse every few steps. We weren't walking that fast, but I could hardly keep it up. The easiest way to keep going was just going to go into automatic and let the mind fade. Stopping and starting again broke that rhythm. That and conversation took the most effort. If uninterrupted, the energy leveled to a dull stability and I could then appreciate the occasional clumps of large trees. Some looked like acacia, dripping in the misty air. After five and a half hours, we arrived at Dungane a village in the forest where there was a forest rest-house. Here we would spend two nights, which sounded sensible. A rest would get me back on my feet again in good shape for the real forest further south. We were also to be looked after by a chokidar. He was little more than a lad, but he promptly set up some chairs and, after my laborious explanation, made a pot of lemon tea. He then went quietly about his duties, He brought wood in for a fire and once we had settled down with a silent evening and the comforting flames indicated that he was going home for the night. The local forest guard came round early in the morning to see his guests. We had just come down from meditating on the flat roof where a cold dawn had slowly painted in the domain of the rest house, the edge of well-covered hills. Giant crags looked over our shelter. They were forested up to their necks, but their weathered pinnacles protruded out of that blanket like the bald, eyeless skulls of ancient trolls. They were in no hurry. Human activities came together in like manner. It had took the four of us to determine that, although we too wouldn't require an evening meal, something early in the morning and a meal before noon would be fine. Teak! ''Okay,'' said the dar, who went right to it. Nick went off to the crags in the afternoon, leaving me to settle into my own mood. I chose to conserve what energy I had, and started the repairs on my bag, which had already begun to come apart. In the process I redesigned it, adding a large loop to carry the sleeping mat, and smaller ones for a strap to fit through. That would allow me to carry the bag over both shoulders. Tudong generally involves a fair bit of sewing, which is one of the required skills of a forest bhikkhu. It's quite grounding. Its mundane simplicity anchors the mind during the storms that self-emptying draws in. The sewing was good. I could stay with that. Memory brought up my teacher, In Bodhagaya, at a Tibetan Buddhist centre, I had met a Canadian who had been a bhikkhu with him for a while in Thailand, going through the conceptually powered patterns of doubt so common among Westerners. What system of meditation was the right one for him, and what level of concentration? Would it be better to practice in solitude, or did it need the support of a community? And wouldn't it be better, as a Westerner, to come to terms with his own background and culture, rather than hide away in the backwoods of northeast Thailand wearing robes. These and many more doubts build up to a crescendo in the mind of a meditator. He gets so strong he can't sit still. So the Canadian felt compelled to go over to see Ajahn Cha, who is in a monastery a few miles away. Distance means nothing to compulsion. When he arrived... Ajahn Chah was sweeping the sandy ground around his meditation hut with a long-handled bamboo forest broom. He looked up at the agitated monk, and before the monk could ask a question, came out with the brief phrase, "'Working is better than talking,' and handed him a broom. Together they swept the leaves around that hut for an hour or more. Then, seeing that the afternoon sun was dropping in the sky... The young bhikkhu felt that it was time to return to his monastery and made to take leave of the elder. But as he turned towards him, Ajahn Chah dropped his broom and fixed him with a steady, penetrative gaze, saying, Whatever you're doing, just be with that. It was an obvious enough statement, but the atmosphere of the forest life, the use of silence, and grounding in simple and mundane physical actions, together with Ajahn Chah's impeccable timing and directness of delivery, turned it into a Buddhist teaching. It was that kind of direct simplicity that cut my mind free when the monstrous intellect could gobble up every esoteric doctrine and weave a few of its own. But what is the mind? That's what takes the direct pointing. That's what you have to surrender all ideas for in order to perceive. And then it's here, where it always was, like the point of a needle as it moves steadily through the cloth. Nick returned dragon-like, glowing with crags and sunset, to arrange the journey onwards We had options. Head for Chatra, which everyone had said was too far, but possibly had a rest house, or go a less direct route in stages. First day to Kalashri, which legend associated with the murder of Mahamogalana, chief disciple of the Buddha. Perhaps as pilgrims, we should visit that. From Kalashri, according to the map, we can make our way to Dantar, and stop there and then go on to Chatra. But these places probably had no rest houses. We chased these ideas around while the Chokidar made tea and eventually settled on Chatra after an early morning start. I arranged for the Chokidar to prepare a meal in the evening. No, we didn't want to eat it this evening, just leave it for us in the morning as we would be heading for Chatra at five thirty sharp. Teak said the Chokidar, and started bustling around. Then the range officer came round to see his guests, and his insistence was that we go to Rajpur with a guide. It was his duty. So the Chokidar made tea and built a fire. We came to much agreement with lots of teak, specifying that the guide be at the rest house at 5.30. January 14th. Why go anywhere? The place was wonderfully silent. We could hardly pull out of the meditation. But Nick was moving stuff around by 5.45, so I put my bag together as the chokidar arrived and wordlessly lit some twigs under the earth stove to make chai. Nick had already tipped him the night before, but when the kettle and glasses turned up, in that bounteous mood that comes with the early morning tea, more rupees came forth, which the lad shoved in his shirt pocket. We waited. No guide. The chokidar swept up, rubbing a swollen eye. It was infected. We talked a little. He had to go to a hospital in the nearest town to get some medicine when he could afford it. Nick responded with more rupees, and the lad smiled quietly, a little awkward. He gave us a wad of rotis that he had cooked the night before and emptied a pot of subji into a plastic bag. We thanked him and moved out. We'd head for Chatra direct. Dik, said the Chokidar. He knew his dharma.
2: Nick
0: Scott we set off up the valley, walking on a sandy track that followed the small river. The sun had only just entered the valley, so the grass was still grey with dew, and there were dew-etched spiderwebs on all the shrubs. We passed under the high crag I'd climbed the day before, looking like a Chinese painting, gnarled trees hanging off its sides. From up there, I'd seen the Ganges plain stretching to the northern horizon. With the Dangan Valley a sliver of paddy fields penetrating into the hills. To the south, the valley narrowed. The scrub descended from the valley sides to fill it, and it disappeared. Beyond that, all I could see was the high plateau covered in mature forest. The best thing, though, was seeing the long-billed vultures. They were only twenty feet below me, sitting on a ledge, scanning the horizon. "'Occasionally one would drop off the ledge "'to wheel away towards the paddy fields and the plain "'with a few flaps of its long wings, "'or another would glide round the corner of the crag "'and whoosh past me. "'This must be the platform they would nest on "'in a few months' time. "'Long-billed vultures prefer to use crags and buildings, "'while the white-backed vultures, "'which we had mostly been seeing until then, "'use trees. "'I stayed there for most of the afternoon.' so that it was nearly dark when I clambered down. As I crossed the valley back to the rest-house, the fear of people returned. The next morning the fear had gone, and as we passed under the shadow of the crag, I was looking forward to getting into the forest. The narrowing valley was beautiful to walk through. The path wound between bushes and occasionally ran beside the river. The valley sides, covered in forest, enclosed us, and it seemed that up ahead things would get even better. I found it difficult to make out which of several paths leading up the valley was the one on the map. The one I chose eventually climbed back and forth, up the slope, and when we reached the top we stopped for our breakfast, with a view back down the valley. The rotis made by the chokidar were still warm, As we sat amidst nearly mature trees, out of one erupted a black bird, which arced across the path, trailing two strange black blobs behind. It was a racket-tailed drongo. I'd seen it in the bird book, an otherwise rather boring, crow-like bird, whose tail feathers looked like two long-handled squash rackets. Ashun found the bird's name as amusing as its appearance. Afterwards we turned and followed the path into what I thought would be dense forest, as that is what it had looked like from the crag and what the map indicated. However, we soon came out into a clearing, beyond which were a few houses. We turned to the left on a track that headed back into trees, but I was beginning to feel lost, as none of this was on the map. As we went on we heard the sound of axes chopping, and with that sound came the memory of the robbery and a strong wave of fear. We managed to pass quietly by without anyone seeing us, but after that we were constantly hearing chopping, and each time it would rekindle that fear in both of us. I'd looked forward to getting into the forest, imagining it would be freeing to get away from the populated areas, but now all I felt was apprehension, and to make things worse we really were lost. According to the map, there should have been a proper jeep track, but we were walking on a trail made by buffalo. After an hour, we heard the tinkling of distant bells, and then saw, amidst the trees, a compound of sticks with huts roofed with branches. Inside the compound were a few buffalo. The rest, with the bells, were grazing some way off. Although still apprehensive, I went in to ask the way two older men sat squatting in one of the huts while a buffalo munched in the corner. They were very surprised to see me, but seemed to understand where I wanted to go, and they directed me along the path. I kept looking for the proper track, and at one point I scrambled up a bank to get a better view. When we did eventually find one, it seemed to be going in the wrong direction, and as we walked along I kept checking the map to see if I could work out where we were. At one point I even suggested we leave it and cut through the forest looking for the right one. But Arjun Suchita was not having that. He was content to stay with the one we had and to see where it went. Sometime later, in the middle of the afternoon, we stopped to meditate. As I sat, I suddenly realised the map had gone. I must have dropped it when I'd looked at it 15 minutes previously. I hurried back, but when I got there, even though we had not seen anyone for a couple of hours, the map had vanished. I was furious with myself. That map was impossible to replace and covered our route for the next four days until we got to Bedlap. After that we had to go on and just trust to the track. That was actually much easier and as my mind settled down and got over the loss it was also much more peaceful. The trust seemed to work on the track too. It turned more to the south and then broadened and in what seemed no time we reached a small tarmite road that led to Chatra how intend to stop that night there was a lesson there somewhere at Chensuchito,
1: sunset where we always arrived at the end of a day with a salutation to the triple gem. On, not onwards, is the way. So we move in stillness by opening to the way it is and letting it carry us. In its own time, the way dropped us onto a metalled road leading to Chhatra. We sat in a patch of scrub and set up the small shrine with Mahakanti and incense and candles When we stood up again, it was night, and the stones by the road told us coolly that Chatra was another seven kilometers. With a post-twilight serenity, we started walking, but within minutes, a small motorcycle coming from the direction of Chatra passed us, turned around, and pulled to a halt. A friend had come again. It was his duty. With very few words, his passenger dismounted, and Nick and I clambered aboard clinging together like mating toads, and so we came to a small hotel in Chatra. The hotel room was tiny and windowless, so we took to the streets and wandered around the stalls and open shopfronts with families sitting round hurricane lanterns making their wares, until there was no more energy to stay awake. In the morning we had a late start, and when we got moving, paused to purchase a round-bottom pot to boil water in, and a steel mug for me. We expected to be camping out before long. The direct route to Lower Long, our next stop, was via a dirt road that headed due west from the main road a few kilometres south of Chantra. We still had a crude map of southern Bihar that showed the dirt road, but no villages on it. That being the case, as we approached the turn-off late in the morning, we wandered into a village for alms-food. A white-bearded Muslim, Muhammad Ali, took us in. Life as a market porter in Calcutta, forty-four years altogether before retiring, had granted him familiarity with life and culture beyond the scope of his village. Graciously, and with careful English he served us the usual fare of rice and dal, and strongly advised against taking the dirt road, he pulled a finger across his throat to emphasise the point. There was another way, go further south on the main road and then take another main road north-west to Lowalong. Comprising the two sides of the triangle of which the dirt road formed the hypotenuse, it was far longer. But... We could take a bus. It was a test. We wavered. We waited an hour for the bus. Eventually, a couple of buses flew by without stopping. Clearly, it was not a day for bus rides. We consulted a fat farmer who was doing nothing special in his backyard nearby. He didn't think there was any problem with taking the dirt road, which would arrive at Lower Longham after about 10 miles. That meant if we walked briskly, we'd arrive before dark. There would be no need to think about that a month ago. And now there was no way to think. We set off, briskly. The tracks snaked through the backs of a few farms, with unsmiling cattle-drovers following us with their eyes, before burrowing into scrub that grew into mature forest. I kept the mantra of the twenty-eight Buddhas rotating in my mind, and we didn't stop. By five o'clock PM we'd arrived at a magical place in the heart of the woodland. A low along the forest was evidently enchanted. Its guardian spirits had painted a sign outside of a bungalow on the edge of a tiny settlement. Indian literature, mythology and culture will be dull if you don't protect me. Forest said the sign. The local elves may have had a reasonable command of English, but were unaware that few of the local humans, and none of the goats, stripping every shred of foliage from the young trees, understood a word. The forest guardians had also withdrawn from the rest house behind the sign. Its condition indicated it was seldom used. We dug out the choky from a neighbouring house. He was amiable, and having marvelled that we had escaped murder on the road, rewarded Nick's persistence by sweeping up, gathering some firewood, and making tea. It was the new moon, and we were in the quiet heart of the forest with a house to ourselves. How much better a situation could there be for an all-night meditation vigil? Because... Whatever may be done out of compassion by a teacher seeking the welfare of his disciples, that has been done by me out of compassion for you. Bhikkhus, here are the roots of trees. Here are empty places. Meditate, Bhikkhus. Do not be lazy and regret it later. but again the irony. Two days of vigorous walking had used up so much energy. It was only willpower that kept me going through the motions of sitting and walking. In an attempt to dredge up some energy, I chanted sections of the party as I walked up and down. At midnight, when there was no longer even the clarity to feel bad about it, I retired for the night. The next day, I went back to sewing. All night meditation had been one of my practices since the early days of my life as a bhikkhu. It made a lot of sense in Thailand. The days were so hot that I would spend most afternoons either asleep or in a sticky torpor. After six o'clock in the evening, the furnace cooled to a tolerable temperature and it became possible to sit upright. So that was the best time to meditate. There was no one about, and I frequently continued my solitary practice until dawn, before going out for alms. When I came to Britain, I discovered that these vigils were one of the hallowed standards of the monks who were my new companions. In the town monastery where I had lived previously, owned the abbot, and a few of the bhikkhus and the nuns practiced meditation, I had been left to practice on my own in an isolated section of the monastery, there was no standard of group or individual adherence to all-night vigils. It just felt like a good thing to do. However, in Ajint Char's monasteries, which Ajint Sameda's little terraced house in London counted as one, the all-night vigil was a duty The fell each week on the new, full and half-moons. Everyone was expected to participate in the group endeavour that centred on us sitting together in the shrine-room. The forest tradition emphasised making a determination and patiently enduring whatever would arise in terms of sickness or fatigue. So the all-night vigil was a focus for that kind of aspiration. I was new to the ways of forest bhikkhus and eager to learn. Being on my own in the West, trying to help my bereaved mother to sort out details of my father's inheritance and dispose of the belongings that I had left behind when I strolled out of that house four years previously, had brought up cyclones of memory and agitation. I'd heard of a small monastery in London, and had met Ajahn Sameda once in Thailand. It seemed like strong enough straws to clutch out so within a matter of days I'd asked to stave the three-month Vassa retreat to be held at Oakenholt, a country estate in Oxfordshire. Of course, I'd have to adapt to the standards of Ajint Charles monasteries, but the tea was good, and the small community a friendly one. It was embarrassing to find out how little I knew of the vineyard, which they were very committed to. For example, my former teacher had insisted that I accept money that people offered and use it to purchase my requisites, soap, sugar, even robes. Here, not only did they not handle money, but anything that a monk had bought, or even might have been bought by another monk, had to be given up. So my robes had to go. They gave me some old ones that were too small for me, one worn down to a bleached pinky brown, the other was a faded yellow. When I walked in the wind I looked like a flamingo about to take off. So I thought I'd better make my own. After all, making your own ropes was part of the training. It meant that you looked after your simple belongings rather than taking them for granted. But learning to sew. All fingers and thumbs, I was a thinker, not a doer. All-night meditation, however, was something that I could do. So these sittings served to channel my need to feel I was keeping up with the group. But these occasions lacked any joy, and the sense of obligation also meant my personal interest and initiative dried up. What had been easy before became difficult. But I reasoned that the forest tradition was an austere tradition for serious committed people, The ability to endure was the mark of a good bhikkhu. After all, we had only one meal a day served into alms bowls where it oozed together into a featureless mass. However, as this also was something I had taken to doing for my own initiative in Thailand, I had to undertake other austerities in order to feel that I was fitting into a zealous lineage. The most difficult of these being to refrain from lying down at any time for the three months of the Vassa retreat. But, as winter followed, wearing the flimsy robes and open-toned sandals on the long arms round through some snow was a practice in its own right. And the hardship offered righteousness. I was a good bhikkhu, one who endures, one who doesn't ask for anything. I gradually realised that Ajahn to himself had a more informed attitude about all this. He maintained the basic Dutanga standards, but applied a lot of reflection to their use. The aim of the practice, he continually emphasised, was to find peace of mind through observing that all of the mind's habits, beliefs and moods had the nature to arise and pass away. If the mind got stuck, one could try to induce letting go through Dutanga practices, But it was also the case that kindness, or patience, or not taking one's opinion so seriously, could be more effective. He actually enjoyed the meditation, and rarely seemed to force himself. But he could put on the pressure when he needed to. I was impressed that, during our winter at Oakenholt, when the snow was piled in drifts, he would leave out of his sleeping bag at 4am and jump into the snow, rubbing it into his bare chest. I have a lot of aversion to being cold, he explained. And something in me wants to huddle up in my sleeping bag. However, on another occasion he gently poked fun at the austere tradition. I was in his meditation hut when some curtains were brought around to hang across its glass front, both for privacy and insulation. He began the job of hanging the curtains with myself and another monk helping out. I noticed that he had to stretch up, to reach the curtain rail, which was only barely within his reach. "'Why don't you stand on this chair, Tanajan?' I ventured, making to pass him a chair that was nearby. He half turned his head with a trace of a smile. "'This is a Dutanga tradition, Suchito. "'We always do things the hard way.' He was such a lovable man, he always had time for whoever turned up, always treated me with kindness and respect. It was surprising to hear him say that one of the most difficult practices had been to take responsibility for a community when he preferred to be on his own. Things had turned in him, he explained, after five years of living with Ajahn Shah. He'd gone on pilgrimage to India and during that time he had considered his life and was filled with a sense of gratitude to his teacher. Whereas previously he had always thought about himself, and what he wanted to achieve in meditation, and how he wanted the ideal situation, where everything would be set up for his convenience, and he would be left on his own, in India he decided to return to Thailand, and offer to serve his teacher. His directing of a Sangha in Britain had actually been in accordance with Ajahn Chah's decision to respond to lay people's wishes by sending them some Western bhikkhus. It was his example, rather than the Jutanga practices, that formed the greatest learning experience for me. His expansive and compassionate responsiveness was the real food for my heart. The ability to take on austerities and duty, even to the point of martyrdom, was already part of my nature. To me, the value of the forest tradition was its green and gentle heart, quiet and natural, dappled with light. When I entered that, I knew that the contemplative life was one of still but vibrant beauty joy and creativity played a part in the life of these forest bhikkhus. Some were quite accomplished craftsmen. Anjum Sumedho himself had produced a beautifully made cover for his alms bowl and small bags for personal requisites with yarn and a crochet hook. He saw it as a mindful response to a need, an activity that could be carried out with clear, focused awareness. Junior bhikkhus, as part of their training had to learn to make their own robes. The application to practicalities was a good balance for people whose introspection and idealism might otherwise make them obsessive, and it did mean that you looked after your simple belongings and didn't take them for granted. I had to make the two large top robes, the Utrasanga and the Sangati. At least I had the use of a machine, But the frustration, always breaking needles, getting the stitch tension wrong, sewing the seams incorrectly, and having to unpick it all drove me nuts. At one time I thought I just couldn't do it. I slid to the floor with the unfinished robe in my hands and looked into hopelessness. The inability brought up a cry from the heart. Unable to go on, not knowing how to go on, but needing to go on. Sitting there, I realised, this is where I am. The sun was shining through the window, and everything was already complete. I stood up, prostrated to the sewing machine, cleaned it lovingly, and tied it up. I resolved that that's how to operate. Every day, bow to the machine. And then take it a moment at a time, and if I spent an hour without making any further progress on the robe, that was fine. I'd tidy up, clean the machine lovingly, and prostrate to it as my teacher. In time, the robes came. The only thing was they needed to be dyed. What did I know about that? Something about mordants, like using sheep's urine, had stuck in my mind. I also heard of using salt, or was it vinegar? To be on the safe side, I collected my own urine for a week and boiled the robes in various solutions of dye, urine, salt, and vinegar. The house stank like a lavatory in a fish and chip shop. So for a while did the robes, of which one turned out lemon yellow and the other a dusky olive. But I felt quite pleased with myself, although other beacus have generally tactfully made robes for me since. More important than making robes was finding a way to unmake the maker of my suffering. Only then would light break through. Working on my current burden of an ill-made bag reminded me of the need to be less intense about getting to places and instead... Give a more heartful and moment-by-moment attention to the walk. The problem was the steady rhythm that I needed for that attention didn't fit with the vagaries of India and Nick's erratic bursts of energy and interest. We'd plan one thing, then be forced to set off late and rush along, then he'd want to dawdle around over a view, then we'd start off again for a while, till I realised he'd stopped some distance back, was poring over a map or a landscape feature and advocating a change of direction. This jerky rhythm would continue until, somewhere late in the afternoon, we realised we had a long way to go with the prospect of ending the day in a state of numb exhaustion. The effort I used to cope with this was that of grim, unresponsive resolution. So in the heart of the forest arose the last option, the only one that works. Be unreasonable. First of all, it was just a voicing of complaints, sometimes irrational, and not always coolly. And it was not about finding answers, it was just making known the struggle entailed in being yoked together. That was part of the tradition too, the way of establishing Sangha that Ajahn Chahd emphasised or through living together until you rubbed each other's hard edges off, then something could grow, however wild it seemed.
2: Nick
0: Scott We were still apprehensive when walking through the forest, especially when we passed people with axes, but even on the walk from Chatra to Lowalong, the fear was getting less, and I was beginning to really enjoy the experience. As we went through the forest, we would pass in and out of clearings. These could be quite delightful, rolling landscapes with large standing trees and houses with whitewashed mud walls and orange-tiled roofs. The smaller clearings, with just a few houses, were the best. They were still surrounded by mature forest, but I could also see how the people's lifestyle, growing crops, collecting wood, and grazing cattle in the forest, would lead eventually to the next type of clearing we passed through. They were larger, still with mature trees dotting the landscape, but surrounded by hacked-down scrubland. The largest cleared areas had a desert-like appearance, with stony dry soils and stunted, butchered trees. We could hear the thud of their axes everywhere, and in the afternoon see them coming back with piles of wood on their heads, herding their cattle adorned with tinkling bells. In time, all the forest would go, humans reproduce and multiply, a small clearing expands, more and more people go into the forest, until eventually nothing is left. This landscape reminded me of southern France, the orange and white houses with high windows and tiled roofs, the hot sun and the scattered trees. The people were different from those of the plains. They were more reserved and slower, more methodical in their movement and somehow more easy. They had a darker skin too and a slight look of Aborigine about them. They used deep wells for water. We saw these wells everywhere with what Ajan Suchito called boom poles. Very long poles, cut from the forest, pivoted on a post, with clay weights fastened to the further end. These were usually up in the sky, waiting to descend, raising the rope and bucket on the other end, sloshing with water. They needed that water. Even though it had rained recently, it felt a very dry landscape. The rocks were a sandy red granite, and the soils were thin and poor. That would be why these areas had been left as jungle. After lower the forest improved. We passed occasional breaks in the trees with a slope that let us see out over the canopy. At spots like that, there was a good chance I might see wildlife, but Utzon Suchita was reluctant to stop, and I would be able to linger only a minute or two. That was his way. He only liked to stop at our regular morning and afternoon breaks, and when we did, the place we halted at would just depend on where we were. I found that frustrating, and had done so for most of the pilgrimage, but now that we were in good forest it was particularly annoying. I wanted to wait for somewhere with a good view, where I could look out at the nature. But for Ajna Suchito it was nine o'clock, and that was when we stopped, midway through the morning's walking. Wherever we were was good enough. The only time I'd managed to spend looking at nature was in Chatra, when I got away for an hour's walk across the fields in the early morning before breakfast. Snipe exploded from underfoot, zigzagging across the fields away from me. A small flock of wood sandpiper and greenchank were feeding in some shallow water, and a double line of swallows perched on the telegraph wires, Drawing nearer, I could see they were red rump-swallows, tightly packed together, chattering, and their black, white and red colouring created two sets of parallel lines. I tried in Lowalong to get away for another walk, using the excuse of having to take some letters to the post office, but Daz and Shuchito wanted to come along. I think he was just trying to be friendly we wandered down the dusty street together, and then on the way back I blurted out something about wanting to go bird-watching in the forest and left him to walk the last bit on his own. But that didn't feel right, and I didn't enjoy it. We were so much on top of each other, but we were such different characters, with such different interests. Me, with my focus on nature, the landscape, and how people used it with his interest in the mind and what motivated people in their religious pursuits. Before, as we crossed the plains, I had got annoyed at him wanting to stop to talk to people. Now I was annoyed because I wanted to stop while he wanted to press on. I had tried hinting about looking at views, or coming up with excuses for going on when he proposed stopping somewhere uninteresting the kind of suggestions that most people would start to understand. But it hadn't worked. Finally, having lingered yet again at a spot with wonderful views that Ajahn had walked straight past, I went on to find him sitting absolutely nowhere beside a very ordinary part of the track. This time I tried the direct approach. Bunty, we have just gone past a really nother a wonderful view. A great place to stop. I would really enjoy being able to stop at places like that. For me, stopping somewhere nice is important. I like views. There is more chance of seeing wildlife. Instead, we stop exactly wherever we are at nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. Please, could we stop next at a view when there is one? It came out with a pent-up feeling of the last few months and it had an amazing effect. Ajahn Satchito listened with a look of dawning realisation, then concern and hurt. I'd made an important discovery. The kind of subtle communication that works with most people, hints, jokes and the like, and also any kind of manipulation I might try, didn't work with my companion. In fact, it tended to have the opposite effect the ox in him got stubborn and refused to change. But if I were direct and explained to him how something actually affected me, it would touch into his compassion and he would completely change his behaviour. After my outburst, Atusuchito went out of his way to find places to stop he thought I might like. It was like the dawning of a new concept to him. He would stop somewhere and try me out on whether this was the kind of place I meant. It was very sweet, even if he didn't quite get the idea, stopping us to eat at our meal at a view of water buffaloes and a few scruffy fields. The forest that afternoon was the best we'd been through so far. The track wound its way through large stands of mature trees, with only the occasional small clearing. There were several different tree species. The forest officer at Barachati had told us that the forest was dominated by sal and had in places a lot of teak and acacia. All the trees we were passing were in the prime of their growth, tall but still young. The forest must have been clear fell for timber during the British rule and regrown since then. There was little wildlife, however. Although we had passed no one else with rifles since the Goton Buddha Wildlife Reserve, I was certain that shooting was happening here too. The forest had an unnatural silence. By then the apprehension that had been with us had mostly gone. We began to relax and dawdle more in the empty woodland instead of rushing through it. The land fell away to the south of our track to give occasional glimpses of a really spectacular view. We dropped across a stream and were climbing again The track curved round on itself and I clambered up on a bank to find a wide vista out across a vast forest canopy to distant hills. I tried to persuade Azen Shichito to come up and look but he was reluctant. I knew he wasn't interested in views but this was such a good one and I wanted to share it. Bunty, it is well worth it and it's very easy to get up here. But he wouldn't budge. Later, as we went on, I asked him why he was so uninterested in views. He answered, rather sheepishly, that he couldn't see them, as he hadn't brought his glasses. I'd forgotten he used to wear glasses. When I first knew him, he had worn them all the time. He explained that a few years back he'd got fed up with them. He was short-sighted, So he could see only a haze at a distance, but decided that was not important. What did a Buddhist monk who had given up the material world need to see views for? So he hadn't bothered bringing them for the pilgrimage either. After all, it was not supposed to be a holiday. Strange, I shall forget, as the glasses were a strong part of the memory I have of the first time I saw him. That had been at Oakenholt on a ten-day retreat taught by Ajahn Sumedha. There had been four other Western Buddhist monks taking part who sat at the front during the day and helped lead the morning and evening chanting. They had all sat very still with upright meditation postures and a relaxed but centred air about them. I'd been very impressed. Then there was one other monk. We never saw him on the retreat but sometimes I'd spy him in the grounds or hanging about at the back of the house, waiting for the meal. He didn't have the same bearing about him at all. He seemed ill at ease, and his robes seemed all wrong. They weren't on him properly, and were an odd colour. He also had an unusual battered-looking face, with a broken nose, crooked teeth, and round-rimmed glasses." On this walk, we got talking about that time at Oakenhall. He told me how he had misunderstood the Dutanga tradition to begin with, thinking the idea was simply to make things more difficult. He had me in stitches as he described how that summer he had taken on several of the Dutanga vows, as well as the practice recommended by the Buddha, of drinking urine as a medicine. It was something the Buddha had only suggested for when there was no other medicine, But because a visitor had recently recommended urine therapy, some of the monks had been trying it. Ajahn Suchita decided to do it as part of a ten-day fast, and he made a vow to drink it all. He hadn't realised that was physically impossible. Everything he drank, including the urine, came out again as urine, and so his room slowly filled up with bottles of the stuff until no room was left on the floor, and he got chronic diarrhoea. Stumbling down to the toilet for the umpteenth time one night, he finally realised that this couldn't be right. It had been a significant time in my life too. I had by then become disillusioned with the Goenka meditation tradition. It didn't seem right to put so much effort into technique. I'd come to enjoy just sitting in meditation, listening to the sound of silence and the way it would be broken by birdsong. So I went off to a Zen monastery, as they were supposed to practice just sitting in silence. While I liked the meditation, I didn't like the discipline. We got told off for looking at the view. So when I heard of a retreat to be taught by Ajahn Samedha, I signed up. It was a revelation. He had us using all manner of meditation techniques and none. The emphasis was on personal inquiry, not technique, and he spoke with an insight I'd never heard before into the ways of the mind. From then on I slowly got more involved with the forest sangha in Britain. It was also then that I made up my mind to accept the offer of a three-year grant to do a doctorate in plant ecology at Newcastle University. Appropriate, really, studying plant ecology and supporting the establishment of the forest sangha. Achen
1: After lower along, the greenness is more profound. I felt more rested and the heart felt settled. There's no map or alternative path to distract attention from the walking. The distance to Punky was estimated to be fewer than thirty kilometres, an easy day's walk. The forest was thicker. And it still didn't match up to my TV image of the jungle. In fact it wasn't even as dense as some old broadleaf woodland in England. But there was the wonderful ambience of shade and light, of green demonstrating how many different forms it can take. There was the wholeness of life. It was disruptive to keep stopping to look at separate elements of it, a bit like getting off a horse that you're riding in order to stare at its fetlocks. But I was trying to include Nick as an aspect of nature that I was to flow along with. By mid-afternoon we were coming to the edge of the upland, and looking down over a plain to the west. In the hazy sunshine it spread out invitingly in a welcome gesture, and our path as we descended led us to one of those broad, shallow rivers that refresh the traveller, the buffalo, and the weary farm worker throughout India. Even the great trucks get driven into the river to bathe. The driver, with his dhoti rolled up to his size, Stands beside his massive beast, washing down its chrome and emblazoned flanks as lovingly as the ploughman does his buffalo. We sat too by the river and took in its wetness and its flow. Punky's Main Street smelt like an old goat. Sub Lieutenant Singh, commanding the street from a simple bench, rotund in stature and theatrical in manner, was obviously Lord of the Domain. First we will drink tea, and talk later. After tea he went to his Jeep, commandeered a few passers by to bump start it, and waved us into the back. Rifle butts were slapped and white gloved hands snapped into salute as the Jeep arrived at district headquarters and disgorged its chief. Crisply clad officers began bustling around, we were settled in the Dak bungalow opposite, and armed guards were stationed around it to protect us, as they did the rest of the Panky from the bandit gangs of Naxalites. Safely inside, Sub-Lieutenant Singh, joined by the equally large district administrator, ascertained our needs. We would like to have parotas for breakfast, said Nick, before I could stifle him. No problem, was the booming reply. Then they got down to the important business of reviewing our route in terms of Naxalites. Clearly our proposed route due south to Betla was out of the question. That way led straight through Naxalite territory. Nick's protests were useless. The police were not going to have it. The Naxalites were active and had recently bombed a local police station. Wondering who these personifications of evil were... I then remembered them from Geoffrey Morehouse's book on Calcutta as being a Maoist-inspired revolutionary group that attacked wealthy landowners. But surely that was years ago and in West Bengal. But now the word was being used to give any outlaw gang of dispossessed peasants an identity, and they gave the police a sense of mission. They guarded us all night, much to Nick's aggravation, Hawking and chatting and stomping round outside her window kept waking him up. But as for myself, I slept like the dead, suffering only from a dream of a hot chocolate drink, which turned out to be just the dream. And in the morning the dream of those glorious Peroltas faded. Our contemplative anticipation gave up at 7am to the recognition that the chalice of bounty had been taken from us. It must have been asking for it that did it. That's always the trap. The bustling castle of plenty now appeared deserted. Sub-Lieutenant Singh was not in evidence and there were only a few silent guards. So we went off to the bazaar for succour But that was lifeless too. So we returned to the police station, packed our bags, and sat in a roadside stall with some tea to ponder the way it is. A fellow contemplative in the chai shop, a doctor, paid for our teas and started up some conversation. He was a relaxed man, but confirmed that the Naxalites were a real threat. Our alternative route was another two sides of the triangle option, going west to Lazzley Gange and Dalton Gange, before turning south to Bettler. And there was a bus. That's the way it is as far as I was concerned. But not Nick. I was surprised how passionately he wanted to adhere to the principle of walking every step of the way. I thought it was only me who got fixated on principles. I persuaded him that if we walked the long way, we would cut short our stay in the Bettler Wildlife Park, which I knew he was looking forward to. The compromise was to ride as far as Leslie Gange and walk to Bettler from there. The bus pulled up and we settled down on the roof amongst the firewood and spare tyres without further debate. How delightful, that bus ride. Born on the wings of that rustic genie, the sky unfurling overhead and hills bouncing past, we arrived all too soon, and within an hour had to descend again to the crowd. While Nick went off shopping, a curly-haired man with bright eyes and rough English engaged me in conversation. Majnu Ahmed, Another of Allah's servants was a fellow sewer of cloth and therefore surely a contemplative. The sign above his shop declared his attainment to be that of star tailor. Our Hindi and English came together in enough places for him to tell me that he knew a cross country route to Satbarawar, the village on the outskirts of the Betla National Park. But first, he wanted to offer us food. So when Nick got back, we all went off to a chai shop where, although meals didn't happen until the afternoon, they offered to fry us up some small bowls of dough. We ate them with painful fingers as they came smoking out of the pan. The locals gathering around us had a transistor radio and above its whistling soared the serene accents of the BBC World Service. In the huddle of bodies undisturbed by raw reality, the voice calmly assured us that war had broken out in the Persian Gulf region. As our fingers burned from the fried dough, the American military were moving to liberate Kuwait, and the star tailor was trying to chart our route. Nick was trying to get it clear, which meant interrogating the English speaker further but I felt we should just trust our lucky star. Somebody called Dr Vince, who is both Christian and English, and some place called Tumbagara, with two references that everyone could agree upon. I reckon that was all we needed to know. And when Nick was satisfied, we walked around in circles with the war rigging in my mind for a while before finding a path that led gradually upwards. It was a thinly grass plateau, and soon the grass disappeared, rocks roasted on the empty land. Occasionally, even in this desert, a stranger would appear to show us the way. I felt peaceful, timeless, moving on under a glaring sun. Somewhere, there was Dr. Vince, a man of God and a healer. And somehow, we'd find him.
0: Nick Scott The change of plans at Panky had been a real disappointment for me. By the time we'd got there, I was really enjoying walking in the forest. When we had first seen Panky through a gap in the forest, we were looking down on the wide green fertile valley dotted with trees like a southern English landscape. On the other side of the valley, there was more high ground, with yet more forest, and I realised happily that our planned route would take us through it too. "'but then the fat police chief had told us about the Naxalites. "'From what I knew of the Naxalites, "'they were more likely to be a threat to him than to us. "'But after the robbery I could hardly insist. "'Then, as we rode down the valley "'sitting on the luggage rack on top of that bus, "'I watched as the forest on the hillsides "'slowly turned to scrub and then disappeared. "'So that from Leslie Gange, we had to walk across bare stony hills. Originally I'd hoped to get to the rest house at Betler the night after Panky. but with this detour that was no longer possible. It was still too cold for Ajunsuchito to sleep outside. He suffered much more with the cold than me, so we needed shelter. Now, whenever we asked the way to Satbawa, the locals would nod and mention Dr. Vince. By the time we finally got to Satbawa we had heard so often of Dr. Vince that we asked for him and were sent on up the road to his hospital in Tambagra. It was getting dark as we walked out of Satbawa. Again we were looking for a place to stay with lorries roaring by sweeping us with their headlights. The clouds that had started building that afternoon again portended rain overnight. And I <laughs> began to pray that Dr Vince was going to be another good man who'd take us in.